You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Well, good evening again. Good evening again. I do believe in audience feedback, so you're not, you're not really going to get the chance to, to fall asleep this evening. Well, it's a real privilege um, to be here kicking off uh, tonight's uh, series on, uh, on the big questions. As, uh, as you heard during the introduction and the notices, this is the first of three. So this evening, I'm going to be looking at this whole question of why Jesus. Uh, next week, uh, we've given David the really easy topic of why is there suffering and uh, an evil uh, in the world. And then on the, on the third week, he and I are going to do more of a kind of joint kind of double act and uh, try and cover a whole raft of common questions that people have about the Christian faith. Now, quick housekeeping announcement uh, before I begin. We're going to cover quite a lot of material uh, this evening. Most of the kind of quotes and Bible references and things I use will be on the PowerPoint. Um, But sometimes when I speak, I have noticed people who try and keep up with the speed I sometimes go end up causing smoke to rise from their notebooks and the building catches fire and the fire officer gets very unhappy. So to avoid that, uh, I'm going to pass around. Actually, Craig, can I put you in charge of the clipboard? If you jot your email address down on that clipboard as it goes round, uh, we'll do a couple of things at Solas. First thing we'll do is we'll sell your email address to Google and make lots of money, um, but they've probably got it already. Uh, more seriously, we will send you the slides uh, from this evening and the, and the audio, perhaps not of tonight, but of a talk like it, so our kind of free gift to you this evening, which means you can kind of sort of sit back and go more with the message than feel you need to sort of keep up with every detailed point. But to kind of set the scene for where I want to go this evening, the story is told of a university student who was looking for work, and he saw an advertisement, a job advertisement, placed in his local newspaper uh, from the local town zoo. Now, the advert was a bit vague, but the, the, the salary advertised was quite impressive, so he thought he'd go along for the job interview. Well, on arriving at the zoo, the student was told that there was a fairly unusual position they were looking to fill. The zoo's star attraction, a gorilla, had died a couple of weeks before, and the zoo was out of money. They had no funds for a new gorilla, and so they wanted to hire somebody to dress up in a gorilla suit and act the part until money improved. Well, strange job, but the money was very good, the salary was good, and it was a lovely gorilla suit, and so the student took the job. Well, day one, he found the job was really easy. He walked around the gorilla enclosure. He made half-hearted monkey noises. And the crowds gathered. People took selfies. Uh, You know, the tourists were fooled. But it was a bit boring. So on day two, he decided he would raise the stakes. He would up the ante a little. He began leaping around the gorilla enclosure. He roared. He beat his chest. The crowds grew bigger. They threw peanuts. This was fantastic, but still a little bit boring. So on day three he kicked it up even one more level. Hanging in the middle of the gorilla enclosure was a a vine. And he grabbed hold of this vine, and he began to swing higher and higher, roaring like a gorilla all the time. And the higher he swung, the more the crowds gathered, the cameras flashed, peanuts rained down, higher and higher and higher he swung, until suddenly the vine snapped. And he flew in a graceful parabolic arc out of the gorilla enclosure and landed with a crash on the floor of the lion enclosure next door. 
He came around from the mild concussion to see a large, angry-looking lion advancing on him, muscles rippling beneath its silky fur, saliva dripping from every fang. In panic, he began to cry out to the crowds, Help! Help! I'm not really a gorilla. I'm just a man in a suit. Somebody, please save me. Well, in one fluid motion, the lion leaps, it springs, it pins him to the floor, and then it says in a fierce whisper, Shut up! You'll get us all fired! Fired. <clears throat> now, true story, absolutely. Um, why do I start with that terrible joke? Well, here's the thing. I think many people in the world think that all the different religions in the world are a little bit like the animals in that story. In other words, outwardly they may look different, but underneath, you know, they're exactly the same. And so because of that, one of the accusations that is sometimes flung at Christians is you're arrogant, you're bigoted, you're intolerant because you claim that Christianity and Christianity alone are true. How can you say that? How can you possibly claim that when there are all these different uh, religions in the world? Uh, you know, here in Dundee, even, we're surrounded by all these different religions. You know, Buddhism and Hinduism and Jainism and Islamism and secularism, all these different isms everywhere. How do, we, how do we think about that rich religious diversity? Well, I have a good friend of mine who is a professor at uh, the University of Toronto. I lived in Canada for, uh, for seven years, been back here for two months, so I'm slowly thawing. And um, my friend is a, describes himself as a universalist, which means he believes that every religion is exactly the same. They're, they're all equal. And uh, he wants over coffee and Starbucks. He treated me to coffee and Starbucks. He's far richer uh, than I am. My mortgage won't go that far. And um, over start coffee once in Starbucks, he told this little parable that he'd come up with to explain how he thinks we can unify all the religions in the world and bring universal peace and tolerance. He said, Andy, think about religion as a bit like climbing a mountain. And God is the, is the summit of the mountain. And you know what? There are different paths up that mountain. There's the Christian path up the mountain. There's the Buddhist path up the mountain, the Hindu path and the Sikh path. There's even the atheist path that just goes in circles round around the bottom. But, you know, the principle still stands. And rather than think of your path being the only way, why not just affirm that every path leads to the top of the mountain? How, how peaceful, how inclusive, how tolerant, how Canadian. Um, I remember he sort of shared this with me, and he sort of smiled beneficently at me as if it was the wisest thing that had ever been said on the subject of different religions. And I looked at him, and I said, that's a lovely parable, Jeff. There's just a problem. Problem, he said. Yes, I said, here's the thing. As a hobby, I climb mountains. I even made it to Everest Base Camp uh, on one occasion. And I said, years of climbing mountains have taught me something. Every path does not lead to the top of the mountain. Some paths do just lead in circles around the bottom. Some paths just go to the toilets in the car park. Some paths lead to the gift shop. Um, some paths end in vertiginous rock faces because they were built by rock climbers, the most insane people on the planet. In fact, if you're lost on a mountain uh, and the fog comes down and your compass is broken and series malfunctions, following the first path you come to at random will probably not get you to the top. It will probably end up with you being a small, pizza-sized, greasy stain on the rocks at the bottom of the mountain. He looked a bit sort of disturbed as I, as I deconstructed his parable, but I said, it gets worse. He said, really? I said, well, here's the thing. I said, Jeff, where would you have to be standing to see that every path gets to the summit? And he said, well, 
Well, on the summit, I guess. I said, well, no, because even on the summit of a mountain, you can't see where the paths go as they disappear over the edge. He thought about it for a moment, and he said, oh, I, I guess you'd need to be floating above the top of the mountain, like a sort of Google Earth view. I said, exactly. Now, Jeff, here's the thing. You believe that God is the summit of the mountain. You believe that you are floating several hundred feet above the summit. Who precisely am I having coffee with at Starbucks today? The parable breaks down. You see, the interesting thing is this. Until the mid-1990s, I hadn't really thought much about how to navigate this question of what it means to be a Christian in a world of hundreds and thousands of different religions. Um, But then, uh, probably, actually, if you'd asked me, I would have assumed that most of the world's religions are broadly the same. Then in the late 1990s, I began attending on a Sunday afternoon uh, a place called Speaker's Corner, uh, which is part of Hyde Park in London. And it's known as the sort of world center of free speech. And on a Sunday afternoon at Speaker's Corner, you can stand on a, on a ladder or a soapbox or, at my height, several ladders and a soapbox. Um, and you could talk about anything, religion, sport, politics, and you'll get a crowd. And uh, one of my friends was using Speaker's Corner as a, as a place to go and preach, especially to Muslims. And I went along one Sunday afternoon, having been told that preaching on the street is easy. Big mistake. Uh, Because my new Muslim friends at Speaker's Corner were well-practiced in the art of taking Christians to pieces. And over the space of about 15 minutes, I found myself utterly humiliated. Everything I thought I believed turned upside down. And I discovered very quickly that the different religions of the world are very, very different. My Muslim friends believe things categorically different to what I believed as a Christian. And far from the different religions of the world being being superficially different and fundamentally the same, it's the other way around. The different religions of the world are superficially uh, the same, but fundamentally, superficially they look the same, but fundamentally incredibly different. But at the same time, I found myself drawn into conversations uh, with Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus and others that fascinated me so much, I actually ended up getting a, a PhD in Quranic studies. And the more I studied Islam at academic level, the more actually I became increasingly convinced of two things. One, that Islam was false, and two, that Christianity was true. Now, I found something funny happens if you say that on university campuses. You guys are a far too sympathetic, generous audience this evening. If you say that line on many university campuses, they start throwing things at you, no platforming you, you know, all kinds of interesting and exciting things go on. I hear people call out words like intolerant and, and bigoted. How, how can you stand there, Andy, and say that only Christianity is true and every other religion is false? Well, one thing I often say to my university friends is worth considering something at this point. Have you noticed that all truth claims are exclusive? All truth claims are exclusive. If you say that you believe the capital of Scotland is Edinburgh, you are excluding the geographically challenged who believe that it is Lewis or, uh, or Dundee. And if you say that you believe that all religions are true, you are excluding people who believe that only one religion is true. In fact, the only way to avoid excluding anybody is to say absolutely nothing and remain silent forever. Well, if that's the case, that raises a question. Why do many people think then that it's arrogant to say that only Christianity is true or that Jesus is the only way? Why do many non-Christians or people in other religions think that is arrogant? 
Well, the more I've pondered this question, the more I've come to realize, I think it's because many people think that religion is basically about being good. Most people think that religion is being, about being a nice person, a moral person, an upright person. And therefore, if you say my religion is true and this person's religion is false, that translates into I am a better person than them. It smacks of being morally superior or arrogant. And it would be, right? But I often like to say to people, what if, what if true religion has very little to do with being good? What if true religion, genuine religion, has much less to do with being good than we might think? I'd like to read you a very famous piece of scripture uh, from the Gospel of Mark about a short encounter uh, between Jesus and a young man uh, who had precisely this problem. Many of you may know this story, um, but let's uh, just take a fresh look at it for a few moments uh, this evening. Uh, This is from Mark chapter 10. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not steal. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Uh, do not give false testimony. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all of these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you still lack, he said. Go, sell everything you have, give to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Now, it's a fascinating uh, encounter there between Jesus uh, and that young man. Many uh, lessons we could draw from it, but the one that interests me just in the context of what we're talking about this evening is this young man had it in his head that to be religious was all about being good. It was all about keeping the commandments. It was all about being moral. It was all about being upright. And in his eyes, he'd kept all the commandments, so clearly there was, a, there was no problem. Now, interestingly, that is a very common viewpoint. Many of the world's religions operate this way. Buddhism operates this way. Islam, that I've studied for 20 years, operates this way. It tells you that if you are moral enough, if you are good enough, if you are Scottish enough, you know, you can earn your way to paradise, uh, to nirvana, to a you know, higher state of human existence. Find whatever it is you're looking for. In fact, somebody once remarked that good personism is probably the world's biggest religion. Uh, quite frankly. Most people believe something like this. Now, what's interesting is there is only one religion I know that reverses that pattern. Uh, There is only one religion I know that reverses that traffic pattern and says it's nothing to do with being good. It's nothing to do with getting to God via our goodness and via our moral behavior or any of those things, that if we were somehow clever enough and smart enough and holy enough, we could get to God. Nothing, says Christianity, can bridge that gap between us and God because that gap between us is too great and nothing that we can do from our side can cross it. But God, in his mercy and his love and his grace and his forgiveness, has sought us out. You see, Christians are not people who are so arrogant that we think we are clever enough and holy enough and good enough that we've worked it out and found God on our own merits. A Christian is actually somebody who is humble enough to recognize there is nothing we can bring to the party. And that we need God to rescue us, redeem us, and restore us. Something that the Bible claims that God has done in and through Jesus Christ. 
And that brings me to the title, the topic really, that I was asked to talk about tonight. Not so much what's unique about Christianity, but why choose Jesus? And that's what I want to talk about for the last sort of half of the sermon, really. You know, what is it that's unique about Jesus? I often have secular friends say to me, you know, you choose Jesus, other people choose Muhammad or Buddha or whoever. What is it about Jesus uh, that's unique? Well, one answer we've already just talked about for a few moments. Uh, Jesus reverses that pattern we see in every other religion and says it's not about us and our cleverness or our doctrine or our religiosity uh, that uh, somehow constructs a religious edifice that can take us to heaven, but in the case of Jesus and the person of Jesus, it's God who steps down and comes to us. And so in a sense, it's not that Christians are arrogant or bigoted for saying it's all about Jesus and no other. It's Jesus himself who makes that very claim. It's Jesus himself who on page after page of the Gospels claims to be unique. I want to explore that this evening how He's unique. It's one thing to say that Jesus is unique. It's one thing to say that he stands out among every other founder of every other religion in the world. But how precisely is Jesus unique? Well, I want to read to you one more passage of scripture this evening. And then from this, draw three ways that Jesus is unique. That whether you call yourself a Christian here this evening, or whether you would perhaps identify with the term seeker or agnostic or something else. Hopefully, there'll be something here for all of us this evening to reflect on. But before that, that one more passage of scripture. I'm going to read to you from uh, the beginning of the fourth gospel in the New Testament, from John chapter 1. We're going to read the first five verses and uh, then the last five uh, verses and uh, then show how this sheds light upon this question of why Jesus. So John tells us, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then from verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Three things that are unique about Jesus, three things that are unique about Christianity. Firstly, Christianity is unique, number one, in its origin. Christianity is unique because the founder, Jesus, didn't just claim to be another guru or another teacher of morals or just another religious leader or prophet or wise man. He claimed to be the creator God himself, come in the flesh. And that's a staggering claim, an outrageous claim, one that you simply can't get around or ignore. And you know, it's Long fascinated me that even if you don't believe in Christianity, even if you stand, you consider yourself against Christianity and you hate it with every fiber of your being, you cannot get away from the uniqueness of Jesus in this regard. I often illustrate it to university audiences this way. I say, look, if you were to remove the founder of any other religion from history, that religion could still stand. So, for example, if Buddha had never been born, somebody else could have started the system of teaching known as Buddhism. Craig could have started it. He could have taught the fourfold path of way, the four noble truths, and the eightfold path, and the what have you. And there would be fat little, little statues of Craig on uh, mantelpieces across Asia uh, right now. Not a lot of work we needed, actually, but you know, there we are. <laughs> that look I just got. And. Um, 
The same goes for Islam. If Muhammad had never been born, somebody else could have brought the Quran. In fact, Islamic theology is, is very clear on this point. Muhammad was just a human being. And so it goes on with the founder of every other religion. You could remove them from history. It would cause no problem. Christianity, though, is the notable exception. Because Christianity is not a system of teaching brought by Jesus, but Christianity really is Jesus Christ. In fact, as somebody once remarked, if you take Christ out of Christian, all you are left with are the letters I, A, and N. And Ian cannot help you. You see, Christianity is not a set of teaching ideas brought by Jesus. It is Jesus Christ, his, his personality, his very identity. And as you read the Gospels, you notice that time and time again, Jesus makes it all about him. To the rich young ruler, he says, sell everything and follow me. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Or as the Apostle Paul so beautifully summarizes it in 2 Timothy 1 verse 12, Paul says these powerful words. He writes, I know whom I have believed. Not what I have believed, but whom I have. I have believed. Christianity is unique in its origin, and that's all tied up with who Jesus is. Secondly, Christianity is unique in its method. Unique in its method. What do I mean? Well, it's fascinating that every, literally every other religion and uh, belief system on the planet, with the exception of Christianity, is founded or grounded in one of three ways. Many sociologists and anthropologists have observed this. There are religions that are based on thinking. There are religions that are based on feeling. And there are religions that are based on doing. In religions based on thinking, uh, you have to learn or memorize or master certain ideas in order to unlock the secrets of the universe, uh, earn your way to nirvana or paradise or Dundee or whatever it is you're you're looking for in life. In religions based on feeling, on the other hand, you have to have the the right experience, the right kind of mystical encounter, uh, get in touch with your feelings, have have some kind of moment that connects you to God. And uh, there are many Eastern religions that operate that way. And then thirdly, there are religions that are based on doing, that tell you if you keep the commandments, if you work hard enough, give enough money away, put these principles into practice, then you will arrive at heaven, inner peace, the summit of the mountain. You know, whatever it is you're aiming for. And every other religious system in the world uh, is based on one or other of those ways or a combination of them. But the more you think about this, the more Christianity stands out as the incredible, no, incredibly noticeable exception. You see, Christianity is not a system of thought, although it's an incredible thing to think about. Christianity is not an existential experience or a, or a set of feelings, although knowing Jesus personally can be deeply enriching. And nor is the gospel a set of deeds or, or rituals to perform, although the gospel will change how you behave if you truly believe it. You see, Jesus did not come to bring new thoughts, new feelings, or new things to do. Rather, he came primarily to reveal God to us. That is who Jesus is, and that is why he's unique. But you can push this idea a little bit further uh, in some fascinating ways. You see, religious systems based on thinking are all about ideas and words. You know, memorize these ideas, and, uh, and you're, uh, you'll arrive at the divine or some such thing. But in the beginning of John's gospel a moment ago, we read this interesting statement. The word has become flesh. 
In other words, the gospel is not an idea. The gospel is something concrete, something tangible. Jesus actually comes and actually makes God known to us. Jesus doesn't just talk about God. Jesus is God. He reveals God. And that's a profound difference that makes him unique. Or we could look at the whole concept, uh, subject of feelings for a moment. Religious systems based on feelings are all about the kind of mystical encounter, some, some moments that overwhelms you and changes your life forever. But it's interesting that in John 17 verse 3, Jesus defines life very simply. He defines life in terms of knowing him, which of course raises an important troubling challenge maybe, deeply personal challenge for each one of us here this evening. It raises the question, do you know what that life looks like? Have you received that life here this evening? See, it fascinates me that no matter who I talk to as I travel in ministry, everybody is looking for fullness of life. Everybody is pursuing fullness of life. Some people chase it in riches. Some people chase it in political power. Some people chase it in sexual conquests or mystical experiences. But Jesus cuts through all of that and says that true life is only experienced through knowing him. And that's why every other religious system fails. Because ultimately, we cannot create life in and of ourselves through our own cleverness, through our own experiences, through our own hard work. Life has to come from outside as a gift. It's free. And see, the gospel primarily has that at its heart. In fact, somebody once said that uh, the heart of the, to understand Jesus, you can get your head around this simple idea. Jesus did not come primarily to make bad people good. He primarily came to make dead people live. And there's a profound difference between those two ideas. And then finally, Religious systems based on doing are highly pragmatic. They're full of lists of commands, you know, do this, don't do this. Islam is the classic example. Huge, great volume after volume after volume of books of Islamic law that will tell you as an orthodox Muslim how to behave in every single circumstance. Do this, don't do that, and you will gain merit and favor and blessing and so forth. But interesting, in earlier in John's, later on in John's gospel from where we were, in John 6, 28, we see something quite interesting. The disciples, kind of operating in this mode, come to Jesus. And they say, Jesus, what, what must we do to do the works that God requires? They ask in the plural, what works must we do? They're thinking like Muslims. They're thinking, okay, tell us the commands. Whatever it is, Jesus, we'll go do them. Jesus replies in the singular, the work of God is this, to believe in the one that he has sent. And all of this flows together into a verse I alluded to a few, a few moments ago in John fourteen six, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to God the Father except through me. See, Jesus claimed to be the way to live, truth embodied, and the gift of life itself. In other words, he supersedes, sums up, and fulfills all of the claims in every other religious system on the planet, and he makes every single one of them about him. It's not about what you think, it's not about what you feel, it's not about what you do, says Jesus, but it's all about him. Jesus offered himself and says, look, if you want to know God, it's very simple. You come to me. And that's what makes Jesus unique and puts him in a class of his own. 
And sometimes when people say to me, you know, why do you think that Jesus is unique? Why do you think that Jesus is the only way? I often look at them and say, well, tell me who I should compare him to. Because I don't know anybody else who made any other claims, even remotely like this. He stands in a class of his own. And then finally, we've said, we've said the gospel is unique in its origin. It's unique in its method. Thirdly, and to bring this to a close, the gospel is unique in its purpose. And what is the purpose of the gospel? What is the purpose of Christianity? Well, it's all about transformation. See, other religions will tell you that if you think the right thing, if you feel the right thing, if you do the right thing, then you know one day, just maybe one day, you might arrive at the summit of the mountain or nirvana or paradise. Maybe if you work hard enough, experience enough things, learn enough things, maybe you will change one day. Christianity, again, reverses the entire traffic pattern and says, you know what, it doesn't end with change, it begins with change. It begins with personal transformation. You must be born again, says Jesus. That's how you become a Christian. Or as the Apostle Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And so again, a question for each one of us this evening. Do you know, this evening, do you really know what that new creation life looks like? Do you really? Have you received that? You see, to be a Christian is not to sign up to a set of ideas. It's not to sign on the bottom line of a statement of faith even, a philosophy or an apologetic. It's not to have some wonderful experience. It's not to obey obey a set of commands. It's not to be morally upright, politically correct. Rather, to be a Christian is to know the utter transformation of your very person, your essence and your nature, your very being. And the reason that is so crucial is the basic problem we face as human beings is not a lack of knowledge. Look around the problems of the world today. More information is not going to solve the problems of the world. We have the internet. We have Wikipedia. We're drowning in information. Nor is it more moral commands if we wrote the right sort of, if we rewrote the Ten Commandments and made them maybe 20 commands or 50 or 100 or 1,000, circulated them, would we solve the problems of the world? No, because it's not moral information that we're lacking. The basic problem we face as human beings is that our very nature is twisted and broken. What we need is new creation. The author, J.R.R. R. Tolkien, author of Lord of the Rings, uh, a man of deep Christian faith, Uh, incidentally, once wrote these words in a letter to a friend. He said, we all long for Eden and we are constantly glimpsing it. Our whole nature at its best and its least corrupted, its gentlest and its most human is still soaked with a sense of exile. See, one of the things I find as I talk to people, whether they're university students or university profs or business leaders or politicians, seems to matter, nowhere, no matter where I go, really, this same theme I hear from so many people, this sense that we've, we've lost something, that something is, is missing, that something is absent, that sense of exile that Tolkien puts his finger on so beautifully there. And this is the problem, quite simply, that Jesus came to address. Jesus is not primarily interested in ensuring that I think the right thoughts. He's not primarily interested in making sure I have some kind of wonderful mystical experience, that I have the warm fuzzies during worship on a Sunday morning. He's not even primarily interested in my changing my patterns of behavior 
although that maker, that should come. But Jesus' primary aim is to move me, to move you, to move each one of us from darkness to light, from death to life. That's, that's, being, that's what being a Christian means. And so if you're sitting here this evening listening to this, and you've drifted into thinking that being a Christian is all about believing the right things, about being doctrinally perfect, or about answering every question that your skeptical friends may have, or that it's about having the right feelings or the right experience, or maybe you wouldn't call yourself a a Christian here this evening, and you've picked up this idea that a Christian is someone who's moral and and upright and correct, a person who stands for moral truth, who campaigns for the right issue. But to those things, you have never added new life, then you have failed to grasp the reality of who Jesus is and what being a Christian means. Because being a Christian is not a state of mind. Being a Christian is a state of being. And there's a profound difference between those two ideas. As Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. And that my friends, is why given all of the options, Jesus is the only rational choice. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you did not leave us alone. We thank you that you did not sit up there in heaven, remote and distant, and just send down a bit of information on the internet or a mystical experience or a set of commands uh, to follow and uh, earn our way upwards. You knew that the gap between us and you was too great, that that way was not the way to new life. But you stepped into history in the person of Jesus. Come to reveal yourself to us and ultimately go to the cross in order to pay for that brokenness and deal with that twist in our nature that we might know new life and forgiveness and restoration. Lord, I pray that if we would call ourselves Christians here this evening, that you would give us a fresh grasp, a fresh glimpse of the reality of who you are. We confess that sometimes we clutter up the gospel with all manner of baggage. And Lord, for those here this evening who would not call themselves Christians, who would identify with another label, agnostic or skeptic or seeker or doubter or interested inquirer, Lord, would you speak to each one of them this evening and meet them where they are too in their questions and their searching. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening. Thank you.